0: What does it take to build a sustainable company? Let's find out with today's guest, Zev Siegel. Welcome to another episode of Question Everything, where we connect young leaders with experts in entrepreneurship, publishing, and design. I'm your host, Carly Sotis, and today I'm speaking with Zev Siegel. Zev is a co-founder of Starbucks, which first opened in Seattle's Pike Place Market back in 1970 and has since grown into a company that has more than 200,000 employees in more than 20,000 locations around the world. Zev frequently gives keynote speeches and has led the Small Business Development Center in Seattle, where he mentors hundreds of young entrepreneurs. So I'm looking forward to having him on the program today to share his expertise with us and discuss what it takes to be successful as an entrepreneur. So thank you so much for being with us.
1: Thank you for inviting me, Carly.
0: So before co-founding Starbucks, you were actually a history teacher. But I'm wondering, had you always wanted to be an entrepreneur?
1: Well, I had... um my mother's brothers, to think about uh, they were in business and uh as a as a kid, I really admired them and uh, they would occasionally when we were visiting in uh, where they lived um, they would occasionally take me to work. My parents were not in business um, but um these rough and tumble uh, business guys uh really gave me a a taste for what it would be like and to let me hang around and see how things are done. And it really made a big impression on me.
0: What were some of your goals and aspirations at that time in your life?
1: Well, you know, at the time when I started teaching, I, I thought it would be a lifetime career, but it didn't turn out that way for me. I, I wanted to do something where I could, um, oh, you know, self-actualize a little bit take some responsibility, and be a little more independent. You hear that a lot from entrepreneurs.
0: And so when you first started Starbucks, where did the idea and inspiration come to you? Well,
1: my, my partners and I, just Jerry Baldwin and Gordon Bowker, had been meeting Every few weeks to talk about ideas for businesses. The you know the three of us wanted to do something different. Uh, Jerry Baldwin was working in a little cubicle in the Boeing Company, and Gordon had started a career as a journalist, which turned into morphed into a career uh, as a uh, advertising and marketing consultant. And uh, you know we we explored several ideas, all of which were not very good for us. And and then, and then one day the it came out in conversation over lunch that uh, two of us had recently ordered gourmet coffee beans from businesses that were not in the state of Washington. One of them actually was in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, and the other one was in California. And we thought we looked at each other and said, gee, that's kind of interesting that two guys from Seattle had to order coffee beans from out, uh, out of state. And we put that on our list of good ideas. And we did what we always did with ideas, is we started researching them and looking for insight and Uh, and in the case of the coffee roasting we never found why it would be a bad idea
0: (laughs) so starbucks started with a fifty thousand dollar investment which probably doesn't seem like a lot looking back but i can imagine at the time that would have been a really significant investment for you and your co-founders and i'm wondering what the most difficult part was of making that investment
1: you know there are a couple of uh, things that we should talk about one is That uh, all three of us felt quite a responsibility to each other and to a couple of family members for that money. And then later we had a small amount of money from uh, investors who were friends. And, you know, we didn't want to lose that money. (laughs) Uh, We wanted to maintain those friendships and we wanted to retain the good feelings uh, in our families. And so it was... um, Something we took very seriously. So that that was kind of a surprise that we had that feeling. And at the same time, you know, it it was kind of a burden. Uh, I remember feeling that strongly. Another thing to keep in mind is that Starbucks today, you know, with uh, more than 20,000 stores around the world, it's hard to remember that it was started with sweat equity. Uh, that is, the founders did a lot of work uh, on the first store, uh, hands-on work that people in the construction and design trades would do today. As a matter of fact, by our second store, we started backing off of that. And by our third store, we, uh, there was very little hands-on work. But it enabled us to get into business and to start having income, painting and sawing boards and crawling around the floor, scraping things off of it. And, you know, it was really hard work. Sweat equity today, interestingly enough, can be done quite differently. Frequently, it has to do with programming in developing apps or software. But that, that's a form of sweat equity. Do it yourself.
0: When you were the first employee at Starbucks, what were some of the biggest challenges you faced?
1: Well, you know, we were inventing uh, things as we went along. And the biggest challenge that we faced was that... Fresh roasted high end gourmet coffee was a new idea in the Seattle market at that time. Coffee had really reached the, the bottom. Uh, people, most people drank coffee that they bought in uh, two pound cans at supermarkets. You can hardly find a can of coffee anymore. Um, and it was terrible stuff, just, just awful. So, our, our goal was to educate people and to, um, we did this pretty aggressively. So if you walked into our store, you know, drawn in by the aroma wafting out of the front door, you know, in a polite way, we kind of pounced on you. dragged you around to show you the coffee and would give you a little sample cup of something for you to taste and then show you the brewers. And um, it was very assertive education. And we did it for years like that, many years. And not just me, but everyone who worked at Starbucks there, because we were dealing with a blank slate. We had customers who didn't understand that the stuff was fresh, roasted, gourmet coffee was actually radically different than what they were drinking. So
0: when you first started out, how long did it take before you started developing Starbucks into what we know it as today and really saw it scale and begin to grow? Very
1: interesting question, um, By the mid-70s, Starbucks was pretty successful in Seattle. Under the ownership of um, Jerry Baldwin and Gordon Barker and myself, Starbucks never grew outside of Seattle. That came later. And the company would dominated and was, uh, had pretty good market penetration in Seattle. We had uh, five or six stores. We served hundreds of restaurants, provided them with coffee. And uh, the interesting thing is that until 1982, Starbucks did not have a coffee bar. And what we see today wasn't the Starbucks of the 1970s. We were a coffee bean store. If you came into our store, you might be given a sample of coffee, but you wouldn't buy a cafe latte because it wasn't available. When the company changed hands in the mid-'80s, by by that time, Starbucks had a a coffee bar, too. And then the new leadership under uh, uh, the now-famous Howard Schultz went into the coffee bar business really assertively, The market was ready at that time, and it proved to be just an enormous success from the day they started.
0: Was it difficult for you to take a step back in your leadership role from the company and watch someone else take over?
1: Oh, no. Actually, I was the first of the three founders to leave the company. I left in 1980, and after a decade. Uh, You know, 10 years. And, uh, no, I was ready at that time. You know, um, a little self-insight is pretty useful in in life. And I think by that time I had understood that I was an early stage guy. I wasn't very comfortable in bigger organizations. As a matter of fact, I'm still not. All of my sympathy is with very small organizations that are growing quickly. Um, It's a very difficult stage, but it's the one that I understand the best. And it's the one that I fit into the best.
0: What are some of the things that happen in those early phases that most people don't see or most entrepreneurs maybe aren't prepared for before they start?
1: The most important thing that we should talk about is that in the second year, we stepped up our expansion plan. We had one store, we opened a second store, and our first roasting plant at the same time, roughly, within a couple months of each other. This was a little bit ahead of schedule, but the opportunities came up and we just plunged in. And um, we ran out of money As a consequence of that, now, you know, there's there's a sound that goes with running out of money. You're sitting in your office and the phone is ringing and it's not hard to guess in that situation who's calling. It's your creditors. And it is a very difficult situation. Every day, people would call us and say, you know, we've extended credit to you guys. Now we want your money. Uh, and we, we would say politely, well, we opened a store in a roasting plant. Look, things look good for the future, but we don't have the money right now. Uh, at that point, we took in a, a small investor and that solved that problem. But the biggest surprise to us was that we had failed to pay attention to our cash flow at a time when we were reacting to a demand in the market. We expanded to meet the demand and didn't pay enough attention to our our cash position. Bad mistake.
0: For entrepreneurs who are just starting out, what is one actionable piece of advice that you would give to them to get started and to deal with those early challenges that you're talking about?
1: Uh, This is a piece of advice that I give pretty steadily uh, whenever I get the opportunity, whether it's in this country or overseas and it is uh, it's 2 two-headed one is it's very important to do financial forecasting not the kind that's done uh, on the back of a napkin but real serious financial forecasting using a spreadsheet program and uh, researching the numbers that you drop into each of those cells in that uh, spreadsheet for instance if you're going to need an office for your business not all businesses do but if you need one what's that office gonna cost and where'd you get that number and can you prove that number and if you're a manufacturer do you have real, uh, what we call hard, est- hard estimates from your vendors about what things are going to cost, the components, and what about the cost of labor? And, oh, did you, you know, and many, on and on and on. There are just a zillion things you can add. And it's very important to do that forecast. You know, I, I mentioned that we ran out of money, but failure to do a, uh, an intelligent forecast is um, a cause of a lot of business uh, nightmares. The number one cause of investors not getting money from potential investors in their new business is that their financial forecasts forecasts either aren't uh, believable or are not complete. And, you know, this is shocking news because most of the world and uh, certainly most Canadians and Americans really believe that entrepreneurs are well-schooled business people. In reality, you know, they're human. They have flaws. You know, the other thing is seeking advice. Right now I'm working with a, as an advisor to a, a startup team in San Francisco. These are really bright guys, exceptionally bright. And they have some experience in business. They have a team of advisors, including me, that is just outstanding. I've never seen a list like this. And they use them. They talk to them every few days uh, by phone. And I think that because of that approach, that this business has an increased chance of success. There's no point in uh, repeating mistakes or acting out of stupidity, out of ignorance. There are people who'd be happy to help. And in North America, there's just the strongest culture of um, giving assistance at no cost to startup businesses. Asking uh, for help from people who are skilled, people who are already where you wanna go or have been where you wanna go is extremely important.
0: Did you have that support when you yes, were starting did.
1: out? Yeah, we did. We, we, we had the best mentor possible to imagine, and um, I found him during the research phase, doing research, which is part of doing the forecasting for your business, and while I was doing it, I discovered that there was a man in San Francisco who was about five years ahead of us in the coffee business, and really deep in coffee knowledge. His name was Alfred Pete, P-E-E-T, it's a Dutch name, and... He um, was deep in uh, knowledge of coffee. He had worked in Java and Sumatra, for example. He'd worked as a green coffee broker in the United States. And he had decided to show America what good coffee really could be. And he opened Pete's Coffee Company in Berkeley, California. It's now a legend. They have uh, more than 200 stores and um, a highly regarded company today, even. Alfred Pete sold his company after about a decade, but his... um, way of doing business has stayed with it he took uh, my partners and I on as uh, almost like surrogate sons we could call him and ask him about anything and he came to visit us here in Seattle a couple of times too in the early days I cannot uh, emphasize what a difference that made and it's not completely unusual for that to happen with startups for instance, in the tech field, there are lots of men and women who've made a fortune uh, in, in software who, are, who like to give their time to, to new people. And so, uh, you know, I benefited from that, and uh, I think that that type of relationship, the mentor relationship, is still very strong today.
0: You being on the other side of it, what advice would you give to people who are afraid to ask for help or don't know how to approach someone?
1: I have talked to a lot of people, you know, maybe more than 100 young entrepreneurs over the last 10 years about this very question how you know, can i approach them won't they just rebuff me aren't they too busy i would say that if you approach the right person that um there's almost a 90 percent chance they'll say yes for example uh I do some work with uh, MBA candidates at two universities in the Seattle area. And this issue comes up with them all the time, where I'll suggest, oh, you know, in your area, why don't, why don't you tell me, imagine what kind of a person would you would really like to talk to about your project that you're doing here at, um, say, the University of Washington. And they'll, they'll describe someone, and it's a, a, a business person with uh, experience in consulting and uh, uh, someone who has a team of consultants that works with large corporations, for example. And they'll say, I can't, I'm, a, I'm an MBA student. I can't approach them. They'll think I'm looking for a job or, you know, the, they won't have time for me. Not true. Not true. Particularly university students, if they approach someone who um, has the knowledge that they want and explain that they are a student and they would really welcome an opportunity to talk with them either in person or by phone or by one of the uh, Skype-type services, I would say 9 out of 10 people will say yes. It's very common. And uh, I've even had clients who wanted to put together a board of advisors that would meet with them twice, two or three times a year, people who would say who would feel free to say you're doing it wrong, uh, and, uh, or on the, conversely, you're doing it right. And I can think of a, a blog publisher who uh, wanted to put together a team like that. And I got her to make a list of the kinds of people she wanted, You know, a marketer, someone who was a big blogger already, uh, you know, a, a, a former newspaper person, you know, all these kinds of people who might have a take on what she was doing. And she called four people, and all four of them said yes. And they met for let's see four times in one year, and then the group was disbanded because the, its function had run its course. And I don't think that's unusual. It's better to ask.
0: What did you learn from asking those questions and navigating all those challenges with your mentors and co-founders?
1: Uh, we were fortunate, the three of us, Gordon and Jerry and I. Number one, there was mutual respect. Uh, number two, there wasn't much psychological baggage. Um, These were we're three pretty well-adjusted guys who didn't have personality problems that got in the way when we were meeting. And number three, we had areas of expertise in which each of us was strong. Gordon went on to a career in positioning companies and advising on strategic marketing. He was truly fabulous at that. And Jerry Baldwin emerged gradually as a superb president and financial manager and he was very, very good at it. He earned the respect of our bankers, too. And I was uh, uh, good at uh, things that related to people, like finding and hiring and retaining good employees and setting the tone for our relationship with our customers, both wholesale and retail. We were, of course, bolstered by... Fabulous employees. I can think of two hires that we made early on, a woman named Jean Mach and a fellow named Jim uh, Reynolds, who became legends, um, who were much better at their jobs than we were um, and uh, enhanced the the company's prospects for success.
0: What were some of the things that those employees did to really stand out?
1: Uh, Let's take Jean Mach first, who uh, started as uh, a retail salesperson in our first store in Pike Place and within a couple of years was running our wholesale division. Super intelligent, extremely engaging, committed to the mission of the company, bringing good coffee to Seattle. And she built a book of um, customers, wholesale customers, that included uh, hundreds of restaurants. This was her first sales-related position. And, And she was able to do it by applying her... Uh, openness and her willingness to engage with people and her overarching intelligence. Jim Reynolds became our first coffee roaster, later became our director of coffee operations. And he just recently retired from another coffee company in the same uh, position. Highly respected in the industry, his name is known by many, many people. And when he started, it became real clear to us that there were some unusual things about Jim. He was an extremely interesting guy. He was able to, uh, to to do the work. He was, you know, strong and committed, and he was very very bright. And then he had the secret weapon that didn't emerge immediately, but it became quite apparent. He had the ability to taste very subtle differences. This is very very useful um, in uh, the food and beverage business. And there are men and women who are famous for this that they who can taste you know you think oh we can all taste things you know we can tell hot from you know hot from cold and sweet from sour and all those things jim and people like him can taste the subtlest of differences Uh, And I can remember many times being at coffee tastings with Jim where there's a whole row of cups and we're slurping coffee from teaspoons. And and Jim is pointing out a a subtle difference between sample one and sample 15. That's just beyond me that I I couldn't tell the difference. So he was a real, real asset.
0: Do you feel like the people are really at the foundation of the success of the company or the ideas? And with the companies that you advise, what really makes a company stand out to you and say, I want to invest my time into this?
1: I can answer that question by first talking about this very same company that I mentioned a few minutes ago that I'm working with right now, the the bright young guys who are based in the Bay Area in California. I was helping them with their business plan this week, and we are working on their bios. And when I saw what their CVs, uh, uh, their their bios, looked like, I told them that we were going to put that as the first section of the plan. I've never seen so many relevant and significant Achievements, uh, degrees from the best universities in North America, and um, uh, work experience that's completely relevant to what they're doing. And I got so excited about it because this business plan is really being written for prospective investors. And I can tell you that investors invest more in the people than in the idea. It's a common thread that you'll hear from investors. They'll say, "Oh, yeah, it's it's an interesting field they're in. They've got some kind of a social app that's." Probably going to work out okay, but these men and women who are in this company could succeed at anything. You know, they're just so talented. You, You hear investors talking like that. So, yes, I believe that the team is very, very important. Not only the insiders, but the outsiders, the advisors, the CPA, the attorney, the expert in the field, all those kinds of people. The entire team is very, very important. There are lots of good ideas. There aren't so many great teams.
0: What do you think some of, the, some of the biggest mistakes that people make when they're working on a team or approaching investors?
1: I'm sad to say that the biggest mistake that is made approaching investors is a poor financial argument. Let's assume that you present well, for instance, in talking to investors either one-to-one or in a, a group setting. Of course, if you don't present well, you can learn that. It's just a skill that's easily acquired you know, with a little training and uh, but let's assume that you can present well Uh, i think that the real crux comes with making the financial argument to the investors can you you know basically proving to them that there is a market it's a market that maybe they haven't noticed yet the investors and that these are the costs for developing whatever the product or service is and these are the costs for reaching out to the intended audiences and these are the financial results of what's going to happen when they start buying. It's just amazing to me. I go to presentations uh, by entrepreneurs to investors just to observe several times a year just to see the new techniques that people are using. I'm always stunned at how bad some of them are. I mean, even at at, uh, investor forums where there has been screening that has taken place, it's no different than what you might see in presentations in an upper-level university class. There are people who are really good at it, who have done their homework and and present well and make cogent arguments. And there are people who you think must have been on vacation that year who who don't do very well. It's the same in entrepreneurship circles. So I would say that good preparation and ability to make the financial argument is extremely important.
0: You give a lot of presentations and keynote speeches. And was that something that you struggled with when you first started? Or has it always come somewhat naturally to you?
1: I'm rarely asked that. And the answer is the biggest group I've ever present- I presented—I had ever presented to until four years ago was about 30 people. At that point, I presented to 1,000 people in Kuwait City. And for four months prior to that experience, I worked with a professional trainer who took me from being able to present to uh, 30 people to being able to present to 1,000 people. And when I think back upon uh, you know, the- those training sessions, which involved, for instance, a lot of video playback. This is what you really look like. <laughs> nobody <laughs> the, uh,
0: likes doing that.
1: Uh, oh, yeah, you find when you... Yeah, that's interesting that nobody likes to do that. That's absolutely true. It's so helpful. though. Um, after her training, um, I, I, went, I flew to Kuwait and did my first major presentation of that type, and I've been doing them ever since. And, you know, it's just like learning how to change the oil or fix a flat tire, once you got it, once you understand the techniques, you can do it. I am sure that you know students at the universities, uh, like at UBC, for example, um, learn how to do presentations in class. And um, some some people, uh, significant uh, percentage of people, get to be pretty good at it. It's a skill that they teach themselves or they take a class and learn how to do it. Not hard. Same holds for a big audience. You can you, you can learn how to do it.
0: What are some of the main messages that you try to communicate when you have the opportunity to speak to a thousand people?
1: Uh, Respect for competitors is one of them. There's a great tendency for um, first-time entrepreneurs in their own little egocentric way, and you have to have an ego to be an entrepreneur, it's not (laughs) a bad thing, that they will um, uh, hold their potential competitors in very low esteem. If they're the new guy on the block, you'll hear the people use the word, uh, oh, the the legacy companies. Legacy is uh, what's usually applied to the old big airlines facing competition from the new, more aggressive airlines. Legacy airlines. Well, people have started using that word to describe their competitors in every field. Oh, yeah, the legacy companies. And it's sort of, uh, you know, like describing a lesser person, you know, yeah them, what do they know? <laughs> well, here's what they know. They've been in business for some of them a hundred years. They own the market that you're trying to get a little tiny piece of. The new entrepreneur doesn't have any market share. They just have ideas. So I find that there's just not quite enough respect. Now, that's not to say that new businesses can't succeed in the face of a very strong, well-financed competition. I, I don't believe that at all. I think they can succeed. But you have to do it with a little respect uh, so that you don't get trampled. Uh, tramped on by um, uh, these people. That's one. Another is, now I've mentioned it three other times, uh, financial preparedness. The third is um, having enough money in the bank. This is a very tricky problem. It's hard to raise money for uh, new companies for many reasons, and some of them very good reasons. It's just darn difficult. So what happens is, uh, in the best case, the... Um, uh, entrepreneurs uh, figure out uh, really about how much money they actually do need, not what they first thought, but what emerges from doing some really good research and talking to experienced people. okay, so now they know they need uh, you know three hundred thousand dollars and they go out and raise money and if they 're really good, they get up to two hundred thousand dollars, and then they say to themselves oh i 'm sure we can raise the other hundred let 's just go for it, go for it." is a very dangerous <laughs> business strategy. Uh, and I keep uh, raising it. Yeah, it's so tempting. You, you know, the entrepreneurs work so hard to develop the company and raise the $200,000. And there, does, there is a trend. People are saying yes, and I'm sure they, they, you know, they believe they can get the next $100,000. But if they don't get it, they will probably lose the $200,000 they've already got. And those people are going to be angry. So that's a, a real common and very difficult problem. But I try to encourage people to find ways to adjust to the amount of money they've got um, or to wait uh, because the uh, the consequences of failure are really serious, both for business and personally.
0: For sure. Well, thank you for being on the show today and for being so open to talking about your failures and successes. And thank you to everyone who tuned in today for another episode of Question Everything. I'm your host, Carly Sotis, and each week I bring you inspiration and insights from creative minds and experts in entrepreneurship, publishing, and design. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can download the show at iTunes, SoundCloud, and at citr.ca.